You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Northway Church, good morning. How are you doing today? Awesome. If you have your Bible, please open it to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah's almost to Psalms, but if you hit Job, you've gone too far. Uh, it's in our right at the end of the Old Testament history books, Nehemiah. We're um, continuing this morning our series called A Praying Life, and uh, have this in mind as we spend time together this morning. What we are asking for in this series is that God would show us a different way of living that is characterized by a praying life. A different way of living, a way of life that stands in beautiful contrast to uh, the kind of demands of our culture and our world, but something that reflects the heart of God as we come to Him in a spirit of prayer. This passage this morning shows us one way that we can do that, Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to look at the whole first chapter. It's only 11 verses. Fear not. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Let's read this together as we begin. The word of God says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray as we begin our time. Father, we thank you for this 
word that you have spoken through your servant, Nehemiah. And we pray that as we consider these words, that you would instruct our hearts to fear your name, to love you more, and to pray in a way that reflects the fullness of your character and your redemptive purposes in Christ. Help us to these ends, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Few experiences can disrupt our way of living like suffering. Before you and I suffer, life is lived on the surface. We are living, to be sure, but our thoughts, our desires, our concerns, our worries, they all trend toward the circumstantial, the temporal, and the material. But when suffering strikes, we are suddenly jolted awake. In a moment, everything changes. Our perspective shifts. No longer are we bound to the surface of things, but our way of seeing deepens as we become aware of all that exists in our world beyond what we perceive. Lesser things matter less and less. Truer things more and more. You and I can respond to such circumstances in one of two ways. One way is to seek to suppress the reality that suffering evokes as we try sometimes desperately to return to the way things were before everything changed. But if we will allow it, suffering invites us to a deeper way of living. It invites us into a way of life that's informed by true reality, true substance. It is into this life that Jesus beckons us. Away from an existence marked by dulled thinking and darkened hearts, but one where he intends for us to know life as it really is. After all, it is only through him that such fullness of life can be found. If you ask those who have suffered and have found such a life through their sufferings, they will tell you that the doorway into such an existence is through prayer. Prayer is what connects us to God, the God whose world is deeper than what we see. Prayer is our way of communing with the one who desires to hear us speak to him and for us to listen in return. And so in this series, we are asking, what then does it look like to live a praying life? Nehemiah's prayer gives us one such example, which comes in response to the reality of suffering and of the struggles in this world. And what we're going to see in Nehemiah's prayer are three characteristics that can guide our own efforts at coming to God in a spirit of prayer, and that we're actually going to incorporate and practice at the end of our time. Those three characteristics are this. First, the prayer of an affected heart versus a disaffected life the prayer of an affected heart versus a disaffected life. Second, the prayer for heavenly desires versus earthly treasures. And third, the prayer for godly dependence versus self-reliance. So an affected heart, heavenly desires, and godly dependence. Okay, the prayer of an affected heart. What does this look like? Let's talk about what it doesn't look like. The prayer of a disaffected life. 
is this. It is a life that is ultimately turned so inward that it is unmoved by the suffering of others, even those closest to us and what they may face. But in contrast, the prayer of an affected heart is the prayer of one who is moved by the realities of suffering, not only in one's own life, but also the lives of others. It is the prayer of a broken heart that can't help but to be moved by the hardship and brokenness of this world. In particular, it is the prayer of a heart that mirrors God's own sorrow over the suffering and trials of his people. Nehemiah's prayer is one such prayer. But it's hard for us to get a sense of the significance of this in reading this text without first understanding the context into which this prayer came. So would you oblige me to give a little bit of a historical background, uh, a little uh, nerd time? Is that okay? Okay. The book of Nehemiah was originally joined to the book of Ezra. And all throughout the history of uh, the, the Hebrew people, but also into the early centuries of the church, this book would have been seen as one book. And it covers three periods in the nation of Israel that follow the destruction of Jerusalem by the hands of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC and the subsequent exile of Judah. The first period that this book covers is found in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, and it describes the first return of Jewish exiles after the Persian king Cyrus conquered Babylon about 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar in 536 BC. And during this time, the Jewish governor Zerubbabel, who was the grandson of a pre-exilic king, a man named King Jehoiakim, Zerubbabel led efforts to rebuild the foundations and altar of the temple that had been destroyed. If you know a little bit about Old Testament history, you'll know that King Solomon was the one who finished the building of the first temple. This was the temple that was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. And so Zerubbabel builds a new temple. The second period that covers the last part of the book of Ezra describes the ministry of Ezra during the reign of another Persian king named Artaxerxes about 80 years after Zerubbabel. Ezra was a priest and he was an expert in God's law and he was primarily concerned with reintroducing the Jewish remnant to God's word so that they could hear and believe and follow this word with their lives. But the third period of time that's discussed in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is what we see beginning here. The ministry of Nehemiah, which began in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, which is about 446 BC. So a long time ago, about 2,500 years ago. And so Nehemiah, if we were to read the rest of this book, he concerns himself with rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, the significance of these three periods is seen as we take a step back to think about the history of Israel at large. For centuries, Israel lived with the knowledge that God intended to use them as a means of blessing for all the nations of the earth. In Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, God promised to Abraham, the first patriarch, that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This was a promise that would be reiterated to Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob, as well as to the nation of Israel as they resided in the land of Egypt several hundred years later. But this was a promise that also came with certain 
conditions. Though God's covenant was based upon his unchanging character, the blessings of that covenant were conditioned upon the faith and obedience of God's people. And so in places like Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy 28, we would read of the logical consequences that would come because of disobedience. The people would experience calamity and their ultimate removal through exile from the very land that had been promised to them as an inheritance. And what you may know is that in the end, this is exactly what Israel experienced. Their rebellion against God persisted throughout the centuries to such an extent that even before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, in 722 BC, a huge section of the nation was taken captive by the Assyrians. And the northern kingdom of Israel is carried off. And then later on, when Nebuchadnezzar comes, the rest of the Jews, they're almost completely removed from their homeland. But even in this devastation, there was a promise of restoration. In some of the same passages of Scripture that warned Israel of the consequences for their disobedience, there was a promise that would be fulfilled in response to their repentance. This is what we see in places like Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. Let me read this for us. This passage says that, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. Does that sound familiar? Nehemiah prayed that just a moment ago. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God, your Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written, In this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Yet what we read in Deuteronomy 30 was not some ambiguous promise. If we fast forward a few centuries, we start to see God speaking through the prophets in very specific ways about the nature of Israel's restoration. Both Jeremiah and Isaiah speak of a day when God would bring his people back from exile and that he would do so through a Persian king named Cyrus. So at the end of the book of 2 Chronicles, which comes right before Ezra, 
we see this striking conclusion in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord God, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The beginning of the book of Ezra restates this proclamation. And so we find the Jewish remnant, the promised remnant, returning to the land of Judah. God's promise was proven true, and his people were coming home. So why is this context significant if we are to understand Nehemiah's prayer? For two reasons. First, surely Nehemiah would have known of these events. He would have known not only of the rationale for the consequences of Israel's sin, but also the conditions for their return. Even though he was over 900 miles away, Susa was in the southwest part of modern-day Iran, he would have heard of the restoration of God's people to their homeland, his people, where they were destined to live, where they were destined to find security and prosperity under the lordship of the living God. But the second reason then is imagine Nehemiah's devastation when he hears his brother Hanani's report. Some 90 years had passed since the edict of Cyrus that permitted Jews to return to Jerusalem. God's promise to restore his people after the exile was being fulfilled. And so Nehemiah, though he was far from Judah, he could rest confident in the state of his countrymen and of the work of God in their midst. And yet he hears of their condition. Hanani tells him the remnant is in trouble. They're in disgrace. The walls are broken down. The city has been burned with fire. And so Nehemiah's heart is broken. So great is his anguish that verse 4 tells us that as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. What we learn if we keep reading in Nehemiah is that he fasts and prays for months. He is before the Lord on his face. And so how do we account for so strong a response? Nehemiah is so far away. He had his day-to-day responsibilities taken care of. He was a part of Artaxerxes' court. He had things to do. He was far removed from the day-to-day happenings of Judah and among God's people. And being so distanced, it would have been easy for him to be disconnected, to be disaffected or unmoved by the suffering of his people, but he is overcome with sorrow. Why? His sorrow is because Nehemiah's heart was tied to the fate of his people. This was a people forged by far more than proximity or affinity. Nehemiah's people were the people called by God's own choosing. He could no more separate himself from them than he could his God. And indeed, his response reflected the heart of God for his people, which is why we see what we see in Nehemiah's prayer. 
But how do we know that Nehemiah's prayer was a prayer of an affected heart? The reality is, is that all of us could pray in response to grieving or suffering or the suffering of others, but we can pray faithless, man-centered prayers, human-centered prayers. So how do we know that what Nehemiah was doing reflected a heart of godliness in his prayer? We know that this is the case because it consisted of requests that reflected heavenly values rather than earthly desires. And this brings us to the second characteristic. Nehemiah's prayer reflected heavenly values instead of earthly desires. In essence, Nehemiah's prayer is simply an appeal to God to do what he has already promised he would do. We read earlier what promise he made in Deuteronomy 30 about how God would restore his people if they would return. And Nehemiah reiterates these characteristics in both verse 5 and verses 8 and 9. He calls, upon, he calls God the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He evokes that verse in Psalm 25 that we heard earlier, all the ways of God are steadfast love, steadfast love and faithfulness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And he asks him then, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. He is praying God's words back to him in a situation that reflect the original context in which they applied. He is asking for God to respond according to God's purposes rather than mere circumstantial deliverance. Another way for us to understand Nehemiah's prayer is to see that he is praying for God's glory to be made known among his people. Praying for God's glory in this sense is not just the exaltation of God seen through the fulfillment of his word. Rather, it is the prayer that such exaltation would occur but it is also prayed with the distinct knowledge that such an event would be what is best for God's people. That God would be exalted is what his people need. Nehemiah is saying, Lord, let your character be so displayed among the world by your faithfulness to your promises that it leads to your exaltation, but also results in the maximum joy, satisfaction, and delight of your people. This prayer is a prime example of one that is offered with heavenly desires in view. It would have been easy for Nehemiah, just as it is easy for us, to pray simply for circumstantial deliverance. Nehemiah could have said, Lord, deliver us, and that's that. But let me ask you, think about the suffering you've faced in your life and the hardships you've endured. What would deliverance be without the presence of God? What would it be like to have relief but to not know him? Too often we live from a perspective that would rather receive circumstantial blessing than to dwell with the God from whom such blessings always come. Deep down in our hearts, if we're honest, we want relief more than we want God in his presence. But Nehemiah instead cries out, Lord, be faithful to your word. Nehemiah knew that such a prayer would mean the accomplishment of both God's glory, but also Israel's restoration. It would mean blessing according to heavenly priorities and then to dwell with God in the very place he had chosen. Yet in offering such a prayer, Nehemiah is aware that there is a condition upon which such blessing, such deliverance amid suffering would be known. This is because in Scripture, what we see again and again is that God opposes the prayers of the proud. 
He opposes the prayers of those who will not acknowledge their sin, of those who presume to act as if dependence on God is an optional characteristic, of those whose prayers are mingled with unbelief. James will tell us later on in James 1 verse 7 that such a one should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. But in contrast, God delights to respond to the prayers of the humble. So this leads us to the third and final characteristic of a praying life that we see in Nehemiah's prayer, the prayer of godly dependence rather than self-reliance. Notice what Nehemiah says in verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. The NIV translation makes this even clearer. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Nehemiah recognizes that his prayers will be of little use without acknowledging the reality that it was Israel's sin that led to their situation. So he humbles himself even further, including his own actions and those of his family in his confession. He knows that God has remained faithful while Israel has not. This isn't to imply for us today that every kind of suffering that we face is somehow the result of our own sin. Yes, there are times where we live with the just consequences for our rebellious actions, even as those who have been forgiven through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But there are other occasions where our suffering comes because of the ways that others have sinned against us, or merely because we live in a world that has been broken by sin. So we should not then be surprised that we suffer, and we should at the same time recognize that our choices bear an effect while other circumstances merely demonstrate the fracture of a world corrupted by sin, whether in other people's hearts or in our world and in creation. Yet there is something instructive in Nehemiah's prayer, regardless of the sources of our suffering. Nehemiah's confession helps to reveal the chief need that he sees in his life and in the life of Israel. This need is forgiveness. Nehemiah knows that even if Israel's circumstantial condition was restored, there was a deeper need present in their lives. Their sin still separated them from God. Their sin still necessitated God's grace and forgiveness. In the same way, you and I may suffer, but the healing that we so often desire is not actually our greatest need. Our greatest need is reconciliation with God and the forgiveness of our sins. This is what is conveyed in passages of Scripture like Psalm 130. In this psalm, David will say, much like Nehemiah, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. It's very similar to what we see at the beginning of Nehemiah's prayer. But listen to what David says next as he helps us to see the need that he acknowledges in his life. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
David's hope is not first in circumstantial deliverance, but in forgiveness. He knows that no matter his physical condition, there is a deeper need that if it remains unmet will still mean he is in jeopardy. He must have God's forgiveness if he is to be truly secure. Our prayers, if they are to reflect true dependence on God, must flow from the same understanding. Nehemiah appeals to the grace of God, and in so doing, he looks forward to the ultimate hope that existed for Israel. But the truth is that even though Israel would be returned to Judah, and even though Nehemiah's ministry in Judah would largely be effective because he's going to travel there himself in subsequent chapters, they would still, centuries later, find themselves in search of a Messiah amid the oppressive rule of Rome. Nehemiah prayed, but his prayers awaited their ultimate fulfillment through the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you and I pray today in the midst of our difficulties, we can do so with a full understanding of God's work in Christ. Full forgiveness has been found for sin through the one sacrifice of Jesus. And perhaps some of you are in a season of suffering today and you have not put your trust in the work of Christ. If that is you, that means that your deepest need has not yet been met. But it can be in him. There's one final thing that I want us to see from this prayer. Notice the last words that we see in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Just as God stirred the heart of King Cyrus, Nehemiah knew that it must be the Lord to move in the hearts of others to make it possible for him to help his people. He served in the court of Artaxerxes, And there was no guarantee that the king would have the same opinion of Judah's suffering as reflected in Nehemiah's prayer. And so Nehemiah prays, asking God for favor with Artaxerxes. And he understood, just as with the need for forgiveness, that such favor was only the work of God. And so he prays with this reality in view. So what are these three characteristics that we've seen? That the prayer that Nehemiah shows us is the contrast between an affected heart and a disaffected life, between heavenly desires and earthly treasures, and between godly dependence and self-reliance. And as we've done in the last couple of weeks, we're going to take some time now to, to pray in accordance with these characteristics. What I want to invite you to consider is how this passage teaches us to pray. I recognize that for some of us, you have heard people pray. Maybe you grew up in church, and so there is some familiarity with praying. For some of you, you are new to Christianity, and the idea of praying kind of just looks like a big empty space in your mind. <laughs> what does it mean? What does it look like? One way for us to understand this, this is a, the way one of my old seminary professors said, is that prayer is simply talking to God. What a helpful, simple way to introduce us to this. But there are four questions that I want us to ask and to consider and four accompanying ways that we can pray. 
And so let's ask God to give us insight in these reflections that lead us to meaningful communion with him. These are the four, the four, character, the four questions to ask and the four ways to pray. We'll have these on the screen. In what ways are you or others close to you currently suffering? In other words, how are you or other people in your life hurting? From that, we can pray that God would minister his grace and comfort to such people so that they would know the depths of his love. Second question, how have you sinned against God in your thoughts, in your desires, or in your actions? We have to be able to recognize our need for God's forgiveness and the ways in which our hearts are turned against him. And so confessing those things before him is such an essential part of coming to him in a spirit of prayer. So we can humbly confess our sin before God, believing that even though we still struggle, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. I love, love, love 1 John 2 verse 1. I'm writing these things to you little children so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What a beautiful promise. Number three, in what ways are you asking God to bring redemption or deliverance in your life? How are you asking him to move? And so ask God to do so in ways consistent with his character, his promises, and his salvation. And then finally, how do you need to grow in godly dependence? We can ask him to show us the ways we can depend upon him from a heart of faith. You have circumstances right now in your life that are inviting you to respond from a heart of faith, trusting him. How can we do that? How can we depend upon him? So these four things, who's currently suffering? Who's hurting? Who's broken? How have we sinned against God in our hearts? How are we asking him to redeem or deliver us? And how can we grow in depending on him? So what I want you to do is I want you to take the next eight or nine minutes whether it's you alone or those you came with, to take some time, pray out loud. It's, it's quiet. You don't have to pray like loudly. I just find that doing so helps um, clarify my thinking. <laughs> You're talking to a person, a person who intends to redeem and restore all things. And so we can tell him with honest hearts what we need. If it feels like an uncomfortable thing, the best way to become comfortable with an uncomfortable thing is to practice that uncomfortable thing until it becomes comfortable. So let's take some time now. We're gonna take eight or nine minutes, you or the people you came with, pray according to these four things. It'll be on the screen the whole time and I'll come back in just a moment and close our time before we come to the Lord's table. Let's take some time to pray.
thank you for the opportunity to pray to you the confidence that you hear our prayers because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and what his resurrection declares. He was raised for our justification. You have given proof of your salvation by raising him from the dead. Lord, we acknowledge the many ways that we are hurting and suffering and broken. The marriages that are in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. Parents whose relationship with their children have been broken and that are in need of healing. Those who are grieving the loss of their husband, the loss of their wife, the loss of their mother, their father, their sibling, their children who are hurting before you, who are in need of your comfort. We also confess, Lord, the many ways that we've turned our hearts against you. Those here who are enslaved to idols of their own making, as a result, who cannot see you clearly, cannot know you fully. We pray that you would bring about repentance and faith in our hearts in a new way we would turn away from darkness and turn towards the light of Jesus Christ into which we have been brought by your help and your power. And we pray, Lord, that you would move in our midst, you'd move in this church, you would move in the city of Dallas, that through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, men and women would come to know you, that their lives would be transformed power of your grace. We pray that where there is hardship and there is suffering and there is difficulty, that you would move in such a way that our hearts would be strengthened and steeled, that we would grow in our love for you and our love for others, and that through our suffering, we would become more and more like your son, the one who was made perfect through suffering. Lord, in all of this, we ask that you would help us to grow in dependence on you, where we are tempted to do it on our own. Would you help us to live from a heart of faith, to depend upon you, to listen to your voice, all so that we could please you and be strengthened by you, experience in deeper ways your love and your fellowship Help us to these ends, we pray, knowing that you hear our prayers, you delight to respond to humble hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.